David is a grief specialist, speaker, and author of six books, including his latest best-selling book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. He has co-authored two books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. His first book received praise from St. Mother Teresa. He leads one of the most respected online grief certificate programs in the world. David is the founder of grief.com, which is over 5 million visits yearly from 167 countries. Welcome to our conference today, David. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You you're both have been inspirations, and I'm going to be talking about that. And I love, I have always loved the name Open to Hope, because I think it so describes that feeling of hope can be a distant place for us many times. And it's not get to hope, do hope, but can we just be open to hope? So just, I want to acknowledge the brilliance of you just finding that name years ago, because it really is so descriptive. For those of you who may not know me, and I apologize to those of you who have heard my story before, um, I think it's probably true for most of us here today. Uh, we didn't choose to go into this field and become grief or loss experts. Rather, it probably found us and it chose us. And it was a choice none of us wanted because when grief comes to your world, it's, it's a very, very dark time. And I got into this by having a mother who was ill uh, when I was growing up. And when I was 13 years old, she had to go into the hospital, into the big city. And back then it was the age of technology and we had the new ICUs and families could go in five minutes every two hours because the family was not seen as part of the healing process. It was all about the new technology they had. And my mother needed this new procedure called dialysis that was only in a few hospitals. You also had to be 14 to be a visitor. I was 13. So when they asked me how old I was, I said 13 and didn't get to spend a lot of time with my mother in the last chapter of her life. And we spent a lot of time in the hospital lobby and in the hotel lobby of where we were staying. And while we were in this hotel lobby one day, someone yelled fire, everyone ran out. There was this huge fire uh, on the 18th floor that we witnessed and up came the fire trucks. And when they extended the ladder, shooting began. And it went on for 13 hours. It was one of the first mass shootings in the US. We eventually, my father got us back to the hospital. My mother died a couple of days later. They killed the shooter in a very cruel way. It was a lesson in all the things not to do in a mass shooting. And it's still taught to police departments today about how not to handle them. And my mother died and wasn't able to be with her. So it's strange, this is decades ago now, that my mother died alone while there was a shooting racially motivated, kind of could come from the headlines today. So it really threw me into this world where I felt like I was just damaged. 
I was lost, I was damaged, there were no words. I went to community college, Sacramento City College, and I went to community college, and there were two classes that were the easy ones and everyone wanted to take, and they were human sexuality and death and dying. So of course I chose death and dying. And they talked about this woman, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who had written this book on death and dying. And all of a sudden, she had given language to what was going on in my world. I didn't even know there were descriptors out there like that. And that really began my own journey to try to find healing and to live again. Now, I always think about that word healing. None of us are healed, but we are in a process of healing and evolving. And so I went on this journey to try to find my own healing. And it became a world where I went into end of life care. I wanted to understand how we died. Even as a child, I knew that death my mother had was not a good death and that we could do better. And I learned about grief and loss and was so fortunate as was mentioned to go on and write two books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, helping her adapt her stages of dying to stages of grief. We talk about it on page one. We always talk about they're not linear. There's no one grief model, all those things. I always like to clear that up. I'm sure her son, Ken Ross, will talk about that also today. And after all those books and working in this field for decades, helping people and teaching therapists how to work with grief, my younger son, David, died six years ago. Brutal, brutal, brutal then, brutal now. And one of the things I remember so intensely was the overwhelming pain. And I liken it to, and I know it's become a graphic and a meme now, but years ago, I had broken my ribs. And I remember talking about grief is like having broken ribs. You actually look fine on the outside. To the rest of the world, you look fine. And yet every breath hurts. To me, that's what grief looks like. Looking fine and every breath just feels like you can't take one more. And that's why I think about in the world, you know, that saying about everyone has a struggle we know nothing about. And when I was in that deep pain, living again was not a possibility. I thought I am going to fold up my tent and I am going to become that old man who never leaves his house, that the kids on the street when they're riding their bike look at my cobwebbed house and go, ooh, is that haunted? And they go, oh, that guy used to be a grief expert and then his son died. I thought I could easily be that guy. I had to do what I told everyone else to do. I had to go to counseling. I went to a grief counselor. I had to go to a grief group. And literally, I walked into a grief group. And when I walked into a grief group, and oh my gosh, it was so hard to get there. I walked into a grief group and I 
put my baseball cap on, I took my contacts out, I put my glasses on, and with my little baseball cap in tears, I had to sit in this grief group, and five feet over was a table with my own books on it. I couldn't be that author. I couldn't be the grief guy. I had to be the father who had to bury a son. And that's, I think, what's so, we wanna run from this pain. Of course, who doesn't wanna run from this pain? Now, after David died, I had something that I think when we talk about this idea of living again, I had something that we often overlook. It was so clear to me because my decades of literally working with so many people, like Dr. Gloria here, who had had a child that had died years before my David died. And I saw her daughter, Heidi, who had a brother. I saw other people like Diane Gray, who had had a child die and was leading the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. I could see other people had found life again. I didn't quite know how to do it. And what I knew for me, helping others had always been healing. And I think that's one of the keys. You know, so many people I've already seen a direct message um, are in my grief educator group or they are graduates and Heidi and Diane have all been teachers in there. I think one of the things that help us is it helps us to live again by sometimes turning our pain into purpose. Helping is healing. That doesn't have to be formal. You are going to notice if you're a person in grief, after your six months, a year down the road, your neighbor is going to ask you questions when grief hits their world. Your coworker is going to ask you questions. We all sort of become these reluctant grief experts. And Heidi mentioned the book of mine, Finding Meaning. And finding meaning is a little bit like being in hope. People go, I'm not there yet. I can't get there. I remind them it is about excavating the pain. And I think it's the same. The title of that book is the title of my talk today, The Decision to Live Again. Oh my gosh, I'm sure there's people watching or there's clients of yours if you're a helper that are going live again. This guy might be crazy. He doesn't get my pain. There's no possibility of living again. That's so unlikely. That's just not going to happen. And yet, I hope what we're doing today is just planting seeds for anyone who's newly bereaved. I mentioned Diane Gray. Diane called me probably a few months after my son died and she said to me so tenderly, she said, I know you're drowning. I know you're sinking and sinking and sinking. And at some point you're gonna hit bottom and you are going to have the decision to make. Do you stay there or do you push off and live again? And it is a decision all of us have to make consciously or unconsciously. Now, if you're newly bereaved, 
like I said, you think this is crazy. He doesn't get my loss. He doesn't get the enormity of my loss. You're right. No one knows the enormity of your loss. And studies show grief takes longer than we think. You know, your friends want you to be your old self again. They want you to be over it in a month or three months or six months in a year. They're not bad people for wanting that. Look, we would love our old selves back too. It just means my son would be alive again. My parents would be alive. I mean, we would all love our old self back. But unfortunately, they are just grief illiterate and they don't understand. And they probably won't until it happens to them. I do know that grief needs to be witnessed. And it's a fascinating thing. I see this in my Tender Hearts online group all the time. People turn to their friends, to their family, their best friend, their spouse, their mom. They turn to that person. And when they turn to that person, they literally think their best friend's going to get their grief. They think their spouse is going to get their grief. And they don't. They're grieving differently. It's interesting. Grief is a time when our friends and family can feel like strangers. And strangers who have gone through grief can begin to feel like friends and family. And it is walking into that world of the trauma of finding the growth, if there's any. And it's not a growth any of us want. And I always say, you know, loss isn't a lesson, a blessing, a gift. Loss is what happens in life. And meaning is what we do after the loss. It's inside of us. But we have to go through this experience even when others don't get it. And like even I didn't get the enormity of the pain that I was feeling. And it is this sense of, someone said, oh, it's like touching a hot stove. I said to them, no, it's like the hot stove falling on you. And the reality is for all of us, we have to realize what we run from pursues us and what we face transforms us. But this idea of grief being witnessed can help us so much. The more we see each other, the more we're seen by each other, we can begin to just see the possibility of living again, to plant those seeds even for ourselves. Now, sometimes trauma blocks those seeds to living again. That's why I always say, if someone feels hopeless in their grief, we've all been there, but we are gonna hold hope for you until you can find it for yourself. And we always wanna know, people always wanna ask, which loss is the worst? Is it the death of a child? Is it the death of a spouse where you feel like half a pair of scissors, the death of a sibling, a death of a parent? I always say the worst loss is your loss. The worst loss is your loss. And no one else can get it. And comparing losses doesn't actually help us to live again. Comparing losses 
means we're in our mind and we don't have a broken mind. We have a broken heart. So the work is to drop out of that comparing mind. And I often say when anyone's comparing, sometimes it's their subtle way of telling us their grief hasn't been witnessed enough. Their grief hasn't been witnessed enough. And we want to make sure that we witness each other's grief and see it. You know, part of the work is to move from pain, the enormous pain we're in, and no one can take that pain away. There's no grief specialist that can. I always say pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Suffering is our mind telling us we're damaged, we're broken, we can't live again. But early in grief, we might have to ask why. And, you know, sometimes we turn to our friends and family and we go, why? And they go, don't talk that way. It's not going to bring them back. But you know what? You having someone you love so much die, you get to ask why. I tell people, put on a detective cap and ask why. You get to ask why. Two things often happen. You either find out there will be no answers to why. And you have to learn to live with the unanswered questions. The other option might be you get some answers. Maybe the doctor explains their cancer. Maybe the autopsy report gives you answers. Even if you get answers, they will never be a satisfying why. And in time, once we've had a chance to explore the why, we can then begin to move from why did this happen to how can I move forward? How can I live again with this loss? I'm not a believer that we get over grief or we move on from grief or we recover from grief like it was a bad flu. I think we learn to live with the loss. And it's interesting, I would often say to people when they would say, there's no possibility of living again, life has ended. I would ask them if I could gently grab their wrists and I would feel their pulse. And I would go, I know you believe life has ended, but your heart is still beating. Your toenails are still growing. There are parts of you that can live again. And a lot of you is living through this. But we're afraid sometimes healing, living again, making that decision means leaving our loved ones behind. Never leaving my parents behind or my son behind. They're coming with me always. I'm not leaving them behind. And sometimes we can feel like living again might feel like disloyalty. But in many ways, that can be one of those stories our mind makes up. You know, doing this work today honors my son. Living again honors my son. It's not disloyal to him. And but when you're in, especially that early grief, and I consider early grief the first two years of loss, and there's no timeline on grief clearly. But an average of two years is early grief. And many times 
we don't get, it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And sometimes the world will say, you know, be grateful for them. Early in grief, gratitude is hard to find. Sometimes it's just a win. Sometimes it's not gratitude, it's a win. It's a win that you got a shower this morning. It's a win that you showed up here to listen. It's a win that you joined a grief group. And these things are so, so important to us because it is that taking one foot in front of the other. And when you do that, you will eventually see there will be a path there for healing. It will not be an easy path. It will not be a quick path. But the good news is we can walk with one another on this path. We can find hope. We can be open to hope. We can live again. We can heal. But it takes enormous time. And us just sharing these experiences with one another. And realize, I always say, the death rate is 100%. All of us are going to walk down this path. And I'm so grateful that there's people like Dr. Gloria, who have just been a leader for so many years in this path, and so many others who are teaching today and colleagues today that really help us find the light that's in the darkness. And it's a very small light at first. But if we just believe in it, it will be there. And we can hold each other's hands. The loss of a loved one can leave you feeling depressed, angry, alone, lost. But you don't have to face this journey on your own. Open to Hope is a free community for anyone who has experienced loss. Find support. Find help. Find hope. Give grief a voice at opentohope.com.